sometime between pressing the record button on this podcast and when I will eventually press the stop button on this podcast, my other podcast is launching episode two. It's about to go live. I have recorded a number of episodes. There are a handful in the can. I, in fact, I spent a good chunk of yesterday re-recording one because I mentioned in my previous episode that I was getting a new microphone. I'm talking to you on that microphone now. It arrived. Um, it's all hooked up. I think I've got it all worked out and leveled. If it sounds a little funny, it's because I am new to this. I'm learning. I'm trying to understand audio fidelity and audio clarity and gain and pick up. And I think I've got it sort of worked out enough that, yeah, maybe you'll hear a bit of a hiss or a buzz in the background, but we'll get there. We will. I will. I think I'm improving with everyone. But anyways, I did a whole bunch of recording yesterday. I think I talked for nearly two hours, reading out bits of my story, reading out bits of, of the, the extra padding text that I'd written around the story, the explanation of my editing. And I have at least four episodes uploaded and scheduled, the second of which is about to go live any minute. And so I thought I'd, I'd take a break from that podcast and do something a little bit more casual. Do a little less reading, do a little bit uh, off-the-cuff conversation, and talk to you about where I am with this audio exploration and trying to be something that is more than just a blogger. I put that last episode out last week where I'd sort of rambled on about, about my blogging history and how I'd spent 16, 17, 18, 20 years putting words into content management systems and sharing them out into the world, hitting publish and wondering if people were reading them and trying to promote that and looking for SEO on my websites and trying to get people to click on links. And I never really monetized any of it. So it was all just an adventure in, is this interesting to people? Will people read this stuff? Will people engage with my stuff? Am I a person who can write stuff that impels people to participate? And sometimes the answer is very much no. And that's humbling. And sometimes the answer is, holy cow, I can't believe 100,000 people read this article that I wrote. It is mind-blowing, but it really varies. And most of the stuff, most of the stuff you put out there falls on the 20, 30, 40 hits uh, spectrum. And only rarely does something really hit. And it takes years and years and years of just throwing stuff out into the wild, of trying to trying to make stuff that you believe in that interests you and you hope it interests someone else enough that they click on it and read it. I think audio is going to be even more difficult because you can't necessarily search for this. I get to write a few words of description in the show notes, but unless you're subscribing to me, unless you're downloading every other episode that I I put out there and listening to it, you don't really know what I'm talking about. You're not going to be able to hopefully find that one jewel in the in the pot of, of raw stones. And hopefully there's more than one jewel, obviously, but, (laughs) um, you're not going to just be able to find that by Google searching it or hoping maybe someone else will listen to it and post a link and say, Hey, you got to listen to this podcast. This guy actually talked about something interesting for once, but here I am again, sort of just putting things out there and hoping people listen to it. That is part of my creative lifestyle that I'm trying to embrace and build and sort of a practice that I can just make stuff, make stuff every day, make stuff over and over and over again and throw it out into the world and see if anybody enjoys it or uses it or 
embraces it. In doing that, one of the things I have proactively done is put together a list of potential topics for this and a broad structure. I don't want to stick to anything sort of and say, this is what I do every week. This is what I talk about. This is how the format is going to be. But I think it's going to be a little bit of casual, a little bit of reading, and then some more casual, and then maybe some more reading, and we'll see. I mentioned last time that I do a lot of writing, and I would like to use this podcast to talk about some of those things, to read out some of the work that I've been doing. And one of the the big projects that I've been working on, obviously, is is over on my other podcast, um, which is called Brad's First Draft, which is me reading the novel that I wrote. And then as I read it, as I read it aloud into the microphone, I am doing extensive editing of it. And that's that's hard to convey other than saying that I'm doing it. And I don't want to read it over and read the bad stuff and say, oh, I'm cropping that out, I'm chopping that out. And maybe that would be interesting to people, but I am more explaining what I'm thinking as I'm reading these and doing some critical analysis of more of the plot while in the background I'm doing sort of editing for clarity and that type of thing. One of the nonfiction projects I'm working on is a collection of essays. And those essays, those essays target sort of two ideas. One, that I am on this creative break and I have this opportunity to become a creative entrepreneur, as it were, to write, to speak, to draw, to publish, to put things out into the world that are not corporate analytics reports and human resource meeting minutes, that kind of thing. As useful as some of those things might be to some people, they are not what I would consider creative work. They are business work. And so I've written a collection of essays that are an exploration of that creative life with a sort of counterpoint of, hey, I like playing video games. Now, you may be a person who doesn't know me at all, and hey, that's cool, and thanks for listening. This is me, I'm Brad, I like video games, whatever. A lot of people like video games. But you might be one of those people who knows me from, you know, maybe you run with me, or maybe you are a family member, or who knows what. That might come as a big surprise that, hey, Brad's really into video games as much as anything else. So, you know, I've got three or four consoles here. I've got a couple PCs that play computer games. I've got a Steam account with hundreds and hundreds of titles in it. I've got stacks of discs and cartridges and, oh, yeah, a little display in the basement that's got all my vintage consoles. And it's it's fair to say I'm, I'm a kind of a hardcore gamer, whatever that means for a guy in his 40s in 2024. Yeah, I'm not a Twitch streamer and yeah, I'm not posting let's play videos and yeah, I'm not doing really hardcore video game online, you know, deathmatch stuff in Fortnite or whatever. But I do play a wide variety of titles. I play a wide variety of genres. I try to explore different categories of of gaming titles and over the years I have really grown my collection of video games. And so these essays are really tied to the idea of what does it mean to be a gamer in your 40s? And what does that history bring to the table in terms of being a dad, being a creative, being a citizen of the world, that type of thing. So I've been poking away at these, writing these, putting together lots of words on the paper and just sort of hoping something comes out of it. And it's one of those collections where I don't know what I'm going to do with it. It would make a neat little 
self-published nonfiction book, or it would be one of those, maybe it's the core of a, a collection of newsletter essays, or maybe I want to read them into a podcast like, like, like this. So I only have two of those essays completely kind of drafted. I, I pick away at them as I feel like it. I, I try and write a minimum number of words a day on them, but I don't sit down and write them linearly. I sort of say, hey, I'm feeling this one today, and so I'll write that one a little bit, or I'll put 200 words in this one and 300 words in that one, or that type of thing. I still try to keep them fairly coherent, and that's where editing comes in, obviously, but it means that it takes a long time to complete any one particular essay. That said, two of them are done, and one of the ones that I started with came out of the idea of me pondering my game collection. And it's fair to say that after nearly 40 years of being a gamer, I have lots of stories, but also lots of titles in that collection. And so it got me thinking about what it means to have so much access to so many games and also so much media, so many books, so many podcasts, so much everything. And what does that mean? So here's that essay. It's called Unlimited Downloads. As I sit down to write these words, the Steam winter sale has just gone live. And so, of course, I've made a mental note. Scribbled upon the chalkboard of my mind, the titles of the 16 games on my Steam wish list that are on sale on sale for a limited time, mind you. And, oh my god, do I need another DLC pack for that game I was playing last week because it's 50% off, but only for a couple days, and... And deep breath. Just to be clear, I don't. I don't need it. I don't need any of it. I just don't. My personal game library has somehow grown to such a size that even were I to quit working, writing, and otherwise existing like a normal member of productive society and then do nothing but play video games full-time every day for the rest of my natural life, sadly, the fact remains that I genuinely doubt I could but scratch the surface of most of the titles in said library. For all intents and purposes, it is fair to say that at this point in my life, now in my mid-forties, I basically have unlimited access to video games. And no, it's not exactly an ideal situation. I may have mentioned this in a previous part of these writings, but when I was a kid, games were rare, precious jewels. We managed to dig them up. We worked hard to get a copy of such and such running on our desktop PC by digging through the startup scripts and recoding the config files. We begged time on first and second generation consoles we'd discovered at the houses of relatives or parents' friends. We chased our own deals for opportunities to play bartering with cousins, school friends, queuing up at a toy store video game display, or attending sleepovers where we knew video games might be hiding. We managed. Somehow we managed to find games. They were rare and scattered and dispersed into dark corners of the world where only kids dared to tread. Fast forward, and in my 40s, I assume there are still places in the world untouched by video games, Somewhere in a rustic hut atop a mountain where people still churn butter by hand and sleep on beds made of tanned animal hides, I assume, just assume, that there might possibly be a dwelling 
free of Nintendo consoles or phone game apps filled with notifications about premium currencies, I assume, just assume, that somewhere far away in a distant corner of the planet there is someone who does not collect virtual trophies or worry about losing their Wordle streak or have anxiety about forgetting to charge their controllers. That somewhere is not my house. Where in my childhood years games were those precious gems, today games exist in a state of pure digital clutter in every electronic cupboard of our house. I've lost track. I legitimately doubt my own ability to inventory every single game, on every single device, on every single form of media to which I have access. Whatever the opposite of a rare, precious jewel is, that is what games are for me today. Abundant, common, and inconsequentially everywhere. This all happened, this unscarcity, manifested in my life, and I assume in the lives of many others for a long list of reasons. Not the least of these reasons is that I have been collecting, hoarding, accumulating, and even occasionally playing games for nearly half a century. Oh, but do you still have all those games you played as a kid, you ask? Actually, yeah. The cartridges are stuffed in a cupboard at my parents' house somewhere, and I've found ways to play them, or at least copies of them, in recent years. Oh, but there must be some game you don't own, or that would be difficult for you to play. Maybe. Sure. I'll concede that point but I'll only concede it a little bit. Getting new games is no longer a problem. There is always a sale or a discount or a bundle or a copy somewhere to be found if I put my mind to it. The problem isn't access. The problem has long ago stopped being access. The thing in short supply is no longer the games, the titles, the copies, or the access. The commodity that is rare and precious and hard to find in my 40s has become something that was seemingly infinite when I was a kid. What I am short on now is time. Again, I've entered into a stage of my life where, for all intents and purposes, my access is unlimited. Oh, but why don't you just stop buying games and play the ones you have access to then? I do. I try. Believe it or not, I consciously, actively think about this and set small mental goals to try and enjoy some of the games that I own in a way that is a balance between, on the one hand, working through some of the collection, and on the other, doing the thing that is the actual point. You know, having fun. Six months before sitting down to write these words, I told myself I would play more of the games I had. That I would seriously, legitimately, try to avoid adding more to my collection. Maybe I was naive. Maybe I was optimistic. Maybe I misunderstood the depth of the issue. See, somehow, in that six months, I have found access to at least 50 new games. To be fair, to myself and my conscience, of course, these games found their way into my life via things like pre-existing subscriptions to the PlayStation Plus service, game giveaways on Epic, a humble bundle that was just too good to pass up, or through something as simple as the New York Times crossword puzzle app, which has added a new viral word game for their users that somehow, in the last three or four months, become a daily ritual for me. Unlimited. Virtually unlimited access. I have infinite lives and games, but somehow barely one actual life to play any of them. The Horde. So, what has changed? Why am I in this situation? Frankly, I don't think I'm flying this particularly overstuffed gaming collection mission solo. 
I would bet that virtually anyone who calls himself a gamer, serious or otherwise, as we round out the first quarter of the 21st century, is sitting upon their own digital game hoard. I would bet that even the most casual of gamers, folks who maybe merely own a single console because they bought it during a hype, or who play the occasional app game on their phone, even these folks are finding themselves with collections that are, well, maybe not enormous and unmanageable, but certainly larger than any collection they had planned to own, and almost definitely larger than my game collection from my youth. We've all got too many games to play. All of us. I'd bet one of my six virtual farming sims on it. The ubiquity of games in my own life emerged innocently enough. One game at a time, yes, but ultimately each subsequent acquisition triggered and supported by a false assumption on my own part. That is to say, I falsely assumed that the flood of games was accidental or temporary or like some kind of windfall that was only going to come once in my life and holy cow, I'd better nab every free, cheap, or interesting title as soon as I saw the opportunity because someday, someday I would want to play them all, right? I mean, you never really knew. And you never really could tell if the wave of availability was a glitch in some trademark-free version of the Matrix in which we all live. Get while well, the getting was good. But then, you know the story too. The getting just kept getting gooder. This ubiquity, this unending flood of titles is not limited to games either. My youth was one of three television channels futzing over a pair of rabbit ears Movies were events, trips to the rental store where we got to pick a single title from a modest rack of options. We owned a single blank videotape that we could record about four hours of live television from the air and watch it later. Maybe if we got on it before someone else taped over it. Contrast that today where I surf through 300 channels, shrug at a wall shelf full of various format discs, power surf through a database of owned digital titles on my iTunes account, and then ultimately just get indecisive about which of the three streaming services to which I subscribe should get my attention tonight, let alone which show. And if I'm feeling particularly unable to make a coherent decision about my passive entertainment options, there's always a never-ending stream of video, literally billions of hours spanning multiple scores of lifetimes on YouTube. I mean, if I was smart, I'd skip the television, just pull out a novel and read and be a genius with a capital J, but but then do I pick up one of the 500 titles in my ebook library or one of the 500 titles in my audiobook library? Or actually, you know what? I subscribe to about 50 podcasts, which all have silently downloaded onto my phone, and perhaps I should spend my evening listening to one of those before I get too far behind and, and another deep breath. I think I mentioned this before, but all this choice is so much less than an ideal situation. My horde of digital entertainment, led in the charge by games and passive media, has outgrown my ability to consume even a fraction of it. How did I get here? I got here like a snowball rolling down a mountain that turns into an avalanche. The Distractionator To be very clear, I'm not a doctor, mind, body, or otherwise. I write that simple, maybe obvious fact in a lot of these essays because as I write these words, it occurs to me that there is plenty of self-analysis going on, seemingly intelligent analysis, and I don't want to give the false impression that I am offering that analysis as advice or really anything greater than some personal, perhaps philosophical observations on my own experience with my life of playing video games. That said, I don't think I'm crazy here. Am I? 
I don't think I'm overthinking the idea that there are consequences to having accumulated a digital hoard so big that I literally cannot ever hope to climb atop it in my life. Unlimited access to entertainment seems nice. Outwardly, sure. Of course it does. And in rereading my own words, trying to consider the critique and criticism I might receive in publishing this essay, my mind veers like a flaming minivan full of letters to Santa Claus straight into the mailbox of middle-class privilege. I get it. I really do seem like I'm complaining about having too much. Oh, you've got so many games and books and movies that you literally cannot make up your mind? People are fighting for their lives and freedom on the other side of the world, you monster. Children are starving and hiding from bombs and living in the shockwave of a global pandemic, you soulless buffoon. And you're over here trying to decide if you play Skyrim again or start the latest Final Fantasy game. That's called Privilege with a capital stop your whining. Yeah. Got it. And that's my point, too. There are real problems in the world. There are real issues to deal with, and there are real actions to be taken, words to be written, solutions to be workshopped, help to be spread, ideas to plant into the soil of the collective human imagination and nurtured into life-changing revolutions of hope. And I'm over here entertaining myself to death, distracted by a fire hose of content. I have everything eight-year-old me ever wanted, more words, sounds, images, and fun than I could have literally imagined could have ever existed, and yet somehow I don't have anything. Self-analysis trophy unlocked? Did I get to the heart of my emotional struggle dungeon yet, or is the final boss still ahead? Let's loop back to the Steam Winter Sale, because simply it's not the fault of Valve or Apple or Netflix or Amazon or any of the thousand other companies that entertainment has become ubiquitous, cheap, and essentially unlimited. They are not to blame. They have certainly removed the friction. They have certainly built businesses that exploit the follies of human nature to become digital hoarders. And maybe we should all stand up, golf clap at their success, and ponder what we do next. I am sitting here writing these essays for one huge reason. I'm sitting here writing because a couple of years ago, I personally decided to do some massive, earth-shaking self-evaluation. I shone the black light on the motel room that was my life professional and otherwise, and then after seeing the mess that was me, made some changes. A mere six months prior to writing these particular words, I quit an okay job to pursue a life with bigger meaning. I wanted something that seemed like it had more impact on the world than preparing user metrics for executives or conducting employee performance evaluations so people could be told that, sorry, you've already topped out your salary, but thanks for playing, and see you next year. My self-evaluation was an effort of trying to inventory my life and figure out how to have a life that had bigger, positive impact on the universe. It was a path upon which I was not traveling and which started to seem like more of a side quest that wasn't part of the core narrative. I dug into myself and I didn't like the story. So I decided to rewrite it. And what did I find? I found a guy who was distracting himself into a numb, pointless existence. That's what I found. I found a guy for which the disasters around the world were blurring with the fictions. The news was simultaneously real and just another app. Life was just another entertainment option. So, how did I get to the point of having unlimited entertainment, uncountable games, and access to billions of hours of video, audio, and passive media? I got here because, like a lot of people, there was no reason not to be here. It's just easier. It's so much cozier than the discomfort of work 
or the frustration of politics or the anxiety of climate collapse. I mean, who has that kind of energy when there's a brand new DLC pack for that game I haven't even finished yet and it's on sale? Did I buy it? No. Instead, I opened my laptop and wrote this because sometimes having everything can mean having nothing at all. I hope you enjoyed that. That was that was the first of my 20 essays from the collection I'm calling Shades of Game. And yeah, I will see where we go with that. I'm going to write some more. I'm going to write some more essays in that collection. All along that similar thread of what have I learned from being a gamer? What life lessons, broad or otherwise, have I picked up along the way from my time picking up controllers or throwing dice or... That type of thing. So I didn't want to give the impression either that I'm down on gaming. Like, obviously, it is a huge core passion of mine. Obviously, it is something that I enjoy doing. I really feel that gaming is an important part of my creative life. In fact, I would tell you that as much as I I want to sit down and write at a keyboard eight hours a day, that is not always possible. Sometimes... I need a walk. Sometimes I need a run. Sometimes I need to pick up a controller and play No Man's Sky or Cyberpunk or Farming Simulator, for crying out loud. Sometimes you just need that. Sometimes you need to turn your brain off and be outside of your head for a half an hour or an hour or longer. And that's cool. That's that's part of this. You can't you can't be on all the time, especially when you want to be a creative person. And there's lots of instructional books and podcasts out there that'll tell you, like, you got to sit down, you got to put in the effort, you got to work, and you got to ship, and you got to create, and you just can't let anything get in your way. In fact, there's that um, book called The the War of Art, I believe, called by Stephen Pressfield. I've been, I read it over the holidays, and he talks about distraction and all the things that block us up and all the the negatives that kind of can pull us away from creating. In fact, it's very important. It's it's good to recognize those things and it's good to call them out and identify them and understand them. And gaming can definitely be one of those distractions. You can sit down and you can get lost in a really good game for for longer than that, but you can go for hours. It's it's not it's not impossible. I've done it. I've I've had days where I sit down and three hours go by and you're like, wow, I should do something. But as much as that happens, there's also the mental break aspect of it, which can act as sort of a, a kind of a muse, a, a bit of a, a facilitator to create flow in your brain that allows you to be creative when you need to be creative. That is as important as sitting down and doing the work and being in front of a a keyboard or holding a paintbrush in your hand or holding a pen in your hand. That's, that's all, that's all important. And it is, it is a balance, I believe. So keeping the mental cogs greased with, um, some video games, some plays, some movies, whatever. And it's all important. So each week I want to cap off my podcast with just letting you know what I'm playing or doing or reading or thinking about this week. Um, I kind of mentioned it already, but I've been playing a game you've almost certainly heard about called No Man's Sky. I will tell you that 
I bought No Man's Sky the day it came out in 2016, and I refunded the game No Man's Sky the day it came out in 2016, because when it came out in 2016, it was notably terrible, and in fact, it would not even load appropriately on my computer at the time. That was half my fault, and that's fine. I've upgraded numerous times since, but... You know, I met the minimum requirements. I thought, hey, here we go. And then, you know, the drivers didn't work and my, and I didn't have enough memory. And it just, it just, it would load up partially and crash. So we bought it on a PC, refunded it on Steam within, within the hour. It was just not something that I was able to, to use at the time. And it shortly thereafter went on my dream list of someday I hope I get a, a console or a PC that can play this and we'll see what happens. And I kind of promptly forgot about it for about four or five years. And then during the early days of the pandemic, I got a PC copy and I poked around on that a little bit. And then I lucked out and managed to get a PlayStation 5 back in, oh, that would have been 2021. It was, it was not right when they came out, but it was shortly after they came out. I was flipping through a website and wound up on a queue and was like, okay, okay, is this going to happen? Click, click, buy. Oops, sorry, I just bought a PlayStation 5. It's getting delivered in three days. So the first game I bought for that was uh, No Man's Sky. And over the, over the couple of years, I've played it off and on. I usually go in bouts of 30 or 40 hours playtime and then abandon it for a while and come back six months later and play 30 or 40 hours over the span of a month. And that's where I am right now. I've sort of, I think I'm nearing the end of my 30 or 40 hours, not because I set a timer or something in particular, but you sort of, you start a new, new game or you go back into a save and you start a mission and you sort of explore a lot and you hop around through the galaxy and you build some bases and you build some mines and you complete some missions and and next thing you know, you're like, okay, I'm kind of I'm kind of done doing the whole thing for a while. But I have been thoroughly enjoying going around and building some massive bases and managing a settlement and trying the new Sentinels add-on that they've added. It is a game that every six months or so you go back to and yeah, you, you jump back into it because they've added more content to it, because they've added an expansion to it, because they've added free updates that make it interesting to play again for a little while and so you do so that's what i've been playing i've been jumping into no man's sky i load it up for 30 minutes here and go you know empty my my storage containers on six different worlds and i make sure my settlement is building something and i go check in with my freighter and then i you know save it up and go off and do some writing or go for a walk or record a podcast (laughs) In fact, that's probably what I'll do right after I finish this is I will go check to make sure that my other podcast launched, which I'm pretty sure it has now, and um, then load up No Man's Sky and check on my settlement. So that's what I've been playing, um, enjoying it thoroughly as usual. But like I said, I think I'm I'm coming to the end of the the things to do, getting a little boring again, doing the same thing over and over. And it, I don't want to just become a, a farming sort of go in there and just collect resources for no reason. So I will probably shelf it again here in a couple days. But until that happens, I am on there is uh, Squetchy. And maybe in the billions and billions and trillions of worlds out there, we will cross paths or you can look me up. Until then, um, thanks for listening again to this Not A Blog podcast. And uh, 
We'll catch you next time. Thanks.